Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm delighted here to, as the Conservative Friends of Commonwealth uh, COO, hosting our annual Conservative Party conference. Um, of course, today, the circumstances are very different from our usual events, whereby this is being held um, virtually as opposed to uh, a room full of you. Um, and we're able to utilize technology so that we are actually able to do this virtually. Um, it's been an amazing year for the Conservative Friends of Commonwealth in which we've had um, amazing growth and development across the organization, uh, even during these very difficult times. Um, I'd like to welcome our CEO, Paul Rota, who has a few words to kick things off. Uh, well, first of all, just echoing Sunil, um, very big thanks everyone for joining this evening. Um, as we were just discussing with Helen before, usually we'd be uh, crammed in a boiling hot room somewhere in uh, Birmingham or Manchester, sipping the, the, the conference uh, paint stripper, as a lot of people like to call it. But um, we've had to adjust this year, as everyone has done. And, and we're just really tonight going to look back on the year and um, reflect on you know, the year we've had and what we plan to do moving forward. Um, and just a big thank you to all of you who have been joining our events and virtually supporting us um, and continually through this and who kind of stuck with us. Um, but without further ado, I'll pass over to Helen Grant, who has recently become our parliamentary chair and also today was uh, named as the Prime Minister's Trade Envoy to Nigeria, um, one of our largest Commonwealth partners. So thank you, Sunil. Thank you, Helen. And I'll, I'll pass over to you now, Helen. Well, thank you very much indeed, Paul and, and Sunil. And, and just, uh, I'm not going to uh, be, be too long tonight, but just to start by saying, well, you know, we might not be in uh, Birmingham or Manchester, but we, we can still have a little sip uh, uh, now, now and then, um, and I have to say, I have got a small glass in my hand. But um, but it's great to be with you tonight at the uh, Conservative Friends of, of the Commonwealth Fringe event. Hopefully, uh, please God, next year we we will be back and we can all be together and talking with each other and discussing th things that are really important and 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 actually being together. Um, but at least we, we are able to talk about some of the good things that uh, have been happening. And I know that you're going to be focusing on that later. Um, I'm very uh, pleased indeed, very proud to be the new parliamentary chair of the Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth. I think it's a very, very exciting uh, time for the Commonwealth. Um, and um, there, there is you know, an extraordinary uh, opportunity and, and lots to do between the UK and the, and the Commonwealth and I think as we leave the EU the Commonwealth should be the cornerstone for the UK government's um, ambitions for a global Britain um, be that in the promotion of free trade the, the, the democracy or the rule of law but I do believe that a strong Great Britain engaged with a, a strong Commonwealth is in the very uh, best interests of, of Britain uh, the Commonwealth uh, and of course the, the wider world too and I'm looking forward to championing um, uh, that cause at every opportunity both inside and outside of Parliament and of course working with you uh, both and your fabulous members and just on, on that note I, I do want to take the opportunity to 
to thank Paul and Sunil and all the members of the Conservative uh, Friends of the Commonwealth for everything that you do to support the Conservative Party. You really are incredible. And every year we see great fundraising work, great campaigning work, uh, and great social action work. And it is appreciated, it really is appreciated uh, far more than, than you know. And I genuinely uh, look forward to working with you uh, in the weeks and months and years to come, knocking on doors, doing the social action work, raising the funds. Um, and, uh, and again, thank you guys for, for, for everything. Thank you, Helen. Uh, we, yeah, echo the same thoughts that was Paul was saying. You know, we are excited to be working with you, and you know, we have real confidence in you as our parliamentary chair. Um, so yeah, we're proud to have someone uh, like you who values the Commonwealth so highly, uh, like we do. Um, I wanted, uh, as me and Paul discussed at the start, we, we're going to be doing a bit of a review of the year that we've had, um, and I thought there's no better way to start than to have a look um, at our sort of general missions and, and what the Commonwealth, uh, what we're here to do. Um, I think sometimes in an organization like ourselves, it, you know, the, it can often be a bit blurry and we're not always sure uh, what organizations like our, ourselves are, are here to do. Um, but with us, it's, it's really, really clear. You know, we, we want to push forward conservatism um, we want to push forward the Commonwealth, and um, this organization is essentially that's what we're here to do. Uh, the government has already spoken about a push for global Britain, and few groups will have the outreach or the values um, that represent the government in the, other than the Commonwealth, uh, with a population on over 2 billion and a GDP expected to be uh, over 13 trillion by the end of this year. It, it means that you know the Commonwealth does account for. 32% of the world's population um, and 13% of the global GDP. Uh, with, with Brexit regularly being talked about and, and the EU, um, it's worth noting that Britain, since joining the EU in 1973, um, the EU in total has grown by 2%, whereas the Commonwealth has grown more than double at 4.4%. So, you know, whilst we're saying the Commonwealth isn't necessarily a direct replacement for the EU, um, we understand that the EU has substantial, uh, the Commonwealth, sorry, has substantial potential. Um, and we intend to work from grassroots to parliamentary level to build these relationships uh, with established MPs like Helen Grant, who, you know, who champions the Commonwealth so well, um, and as well as profile and, and delegates across the globe, as many of you will have seen uh, from, our, from our webinars. Moving on to our next slide, we're, we're reviewing 2020. Um, I think a lot of people will acknowledge that it's been a, quite a different year uh, from what we, we expected. Um, it's, it's hard not to mention uh, COVID-19 um, when we talk about the year um, and, and the impact it's had. And I'm sure there's many people here who have either been directly affected by the virus or, or no loved ones that have. Um, and our condolences go to those people. You know, if, if there ever was a need for international cooperation, today's world shows that, um, and, and this virus definitely shows that. And you know, we, we've seen a number of Commonwealth countries being hurt by the virus, uh, none more so than ourselves. Uh, but like they say, whilst there is uh, a crisis, um, there is also an opportunity. And 
that opportunity is something that our organization has decided to really push forward uh, by really pushing forward positive messages. Um, prior to COVID-19, uh, we actually held a, an event at the start of the year uh, with the Rotary Club. Um, and uh, that was with um, Judith Dumont. Um, and we, we discussed uh, plans for polio eradication with Conservative MP uh, Bob Blackman, uh, Lord Tarek Ahmed. Um, and uh, I, I'm actually delighted uh, to have with us uh, Rotary's representative to the Commonwealth, Judith Dumont, who's played a key role in organizing that event. And uh, I'm sure it's something that she can talk about in uh, a lot more detail. So I will quickly pass it over to uh, Judith. Thank you, Sunil, and good evening, everyone. Um, yes, we had a wonderful event at the House of Commons, co-hosted with the Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth, marking Commonwealth Week and the visit of our international president to London. And um, as Sunil said, our uh, keynote speaker was um, Lord Armagh. Um, but of course, that was just before lockdown, and um, we were very lucky to get the event in. And after lockdown, on March the 20th, the polio vaccination programme was halted, and all the staff and all the resources were transferred to responding to um, COVID-19. And um, in addition to all the polio staff and resources being transferred to co responding to COVID. Rot the Rotary Foundation has given out since um, March more than $25 million in, in grants to help communities respond to COVID. And also, in addition to that, all clubs and districts in the Commonwealth will have responded to the COVID situation in their communities. The, um, the polio staff, um, the they were used for training health workers with regard to COVID. And also the polio laboratory network that we have, which is 72 laboratories around the world, that was also utilized for testing for COVID. And um, we had a call center in Pakistan for polio. Well, that was also used and is still being used actually for calls in relation to polio and COVID. And um, our community mobilizers, um, through our partner with UNICEF, um, they did a huge amount of work educating local health workers on the local community about COVID and how to protect yourself against it if you're a health worker. And um, our logistics officers um, for the polio vaccine, they facilitated the distribution of the personal protective equipment for the health workers. And also our systems were used for tracing contacts. So the whole program was just geared to responding to, to COVID. I'm happy to say that in July, we started vaccinating again in Afghanistan and Pakistan and a couple of African countries. And um, but we are still responding to COVID. And of course there are financial implications on using all our resources for the COVID pandemic. And um, these are being discussed at, uh, at the Global Polio Education Initiative. Thanks, Sunil. Back to you. Thank you, Judith. Um, it was, you know, it was, an, it was an absolute honour to do that event um, with Judith. It was uh, well received. We had um, Conservative MP Bob Blackman speak, and um, and it was a great education um, for us on the impacts of. Um, what's been going on in terms of polio and the link between COVID. And I don't think it's more um, 
evident today that the need for a sort of international cooperation. Um, shortly after uh, that event, uh, news started to spread about the impact of COVID-19 and we as an organization, uh, like many others, had to adapt and we made the decision to no longer hold any physical events for the foreseeable future. Uh, naturally, that, that comes with challenges. Um, however, we saw a fantastic opportunity uh, to reach out to key political figures across the globe um, and look at exploring more virtual events. Um, here we've had tremendous success as we've had some of the most influential um, political figures uh, across the globe speak on our platform. Um, th these include uh, some high profile people. Um, John R. Baird, who was the uh, former Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs from 2011 to 2015 in the Canadian Cabinet. Malcolm Turnbull, um, former Australian Prime Minister from 2015 to 18. Um, Robert Zulik, who uh, served as an advisor for six US presidents, including George Bush Jr. and Sr., um, as well as being the uh, president of the World Bank during the financial crisis. George Osborne, as, as many of you will know, the Chancellor of Exchequer under Prime Minister David Cameron uh, from 2010 to 2016. Sir Linton Crosby, uh, a political strategist and uh, a man seen as one of the most influential figures in politics. Dr. Luke Evans, uh, you know, a rising political star who's recently caught the news for his social media bill that he revealed um, at the time exclusively with us. Um, all, all these webinars are, are now available to the public and you can see them on our, on our YouTube channel. Um, you can uh, also see them on, on our di various different social media platform. Nevertheless, we've decided to share a few snippets that have been very popular amongst our audience um, and uh, our various different social media channels. Um, so I will load a couple of those up now. Um, we'll start with John Baird, who, as many of you, you know, he was uh, served as a, an important figure in, in the Harper administration. Um, and here he is talking about the Commonwealth. And it was one that we were actually very fortunate to have Helen Grant also present in this. Um, and it turned into a, a fantastic event. And uh, I'll share screen now and we can watch some of the, the clips. Minister of the Environment, Minister of uh, Transport and Infrastructure, and the Leader of Government in the House of Commons. John, we're delighted to have you with us today. Um, I thought it'd be good to kick things off with your reflection on your time as Foreign Affairs Minister and your sort of general dealings with the Commonwealth. Great. Well, thank you very much. I'm very thrilled uh, to be with you. <clears throat> I'm especially thrilled to, uh, to meet Helen and to, uh, to hear from her. I am very much an Anglophile. I love uh, London, I love England, uh, love the United Kingdom, and uh, visit as often as I can. And it's probably been one of the worst things about COVID-19 uh, is I haven't been able to uh, fly across the pond and see, uh, and see friends. When I uh, first became uh, Foreign Minister in 2011, William Hague was one of the first colleagues that uh, called me and he said, uh, uh, John, it's a very interesting time to be Foreign Affairs Minister. And uh, he couldn't have been uh, more right. Uh, the upheaval in the uh, Middle East uh, with the war in uh, Libya, with the uh, humanitarian crisis in uh, Syria uh, and uh, the looming threat that uh, Iran posed. It was uh, definitely a fascinating time to become uh, involved in, uh, in foreign policy in a major, uh, in a major way. It was also <clears throat> an addition time to, uh, with respect to uh, the Commonwealth. Uh, I wish uh, Baroness Scotland well in all that uh, she's doing to, uh, to try to uh, reform the, uh, the Commonwealth. So 
perhaps talk about my time before 2015 and not, uh, and not make any negative comments uh, on the good work that, uh, that she is doing. Well, we had an eminent persons report that uh, uh, had uh, that reported back when I was a minister in Canada had uh, Hugh Siegel, who was a Canadian senator and a good friend of mine, uh, represented on it. And then uh, shortly after I, uh, I became foreign minister, I joined the uh, Commonwealth Ministerial Action Group. Uh, and we made a really uh, big attempt to, uh, to try to, uh, to reform the Commonwealth, to try to, uh, to push that eminent person's uh, report, particularly with respect to uh, human rights and uh, liberal democracy. I, I, am, I regret to say that uh, we weren't particularly successful. Uh, the report was not well received by the Commonwealth Secretariat and the former uh, Secretary General, and uh, precious little of it, unfortunately, was, uh, was, uh, uh, was implemented. And I think we did uh, fail uh, to, uh, to tackle the, uh, the issue of Sri Lanka. Uh, Canada and our Prime Minister took uh, a very hard line against Rajapaksa and uh, his regime, uh, both the war crimes that took place at the end of the uh, Civil War and uh, the authoritarian uh, trend uh, that existed in Sri Lanka. It was uh, for that reason that we pushed that they're, uh, they're hosting the uh, Chogum uh, be delayed, <coughs> which it was, and I think it gave them an excellent opportunity to, uh, to try to uh, reform and clean up their act. Uh, regrettably, that did not happen. Uh, the Prime Minister of Canada boycotted the summit. We sent uh, a more junior colleague uh, outside of the cabinet to, uh, to represent Canada. And at the end of the day, uh, it was, I think I was very proud of the Commonwealth in that a majority of heads of government did not attend uh, Chogum, uh, which I think sent a, a very powerful message to, uh, to the government in, uh, in Colombo and to, <coughs> frankly, the world. Um, and I think uh, Stephen Harper's uh, strong stance uh, was uh, was validated by the uh, the, uh, the lack of turnout. I think the Commonwealth. Uh, there's one big word for it: uh, great potential. Uh, I was thrilled when the Commonwealth leaders uh, approved uh, Her Majesty's succession plan that uh, Prince Charles, when he ascends the throne, uh, will become uh, the uh, the leader of the Commonwealth. We were uh, very supportive and thrilled with that uh, decision. I think for the United Kingdom, uh, we uh, have a, a huge opportunity uh, for the United Kingdom in this uh, in this uh, you know G zero world, as I call it, where you know the United States is uh, retreating, um, and I think there's a real opportunity for the uh, British government and the British Prime Minister to take a, a stronger leadership role and to, uh, as uh, Chancellor Merkel, uh, you know, had her long exit from uh, from European politics and global affairs. Uh, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, I think, has a real opportunity to become, uh, you know, the de facto leader of the uh, of the free world, and it can certainly start, uh, you know, uh, with strong leadership uh, for the Commonwealth, pushing those things that uh, Helen mentioned: uh, the rule of law, you know, human rights, uh, democracy, uh, trying to promote <coughs> the um, the uh, those uh, type of values, which I think should be one of the pre G chief um, chief missions of the uh, of the Commonwealth. Uh, Finally, I'd also like to say a bit of words about uh, Canada-UK uh, relations. <clears throat> Despite the uh, Conservatives not being in power, the one area where the current government has done a very good job is uh, following through on Conservative leadership with respect to free trade. Uh, the uh, now Deputy Prime Minister uh, personally saved the uh, Canada-EU trade deal and it looked like it was going south after it was successfully negotiated. Um, and that's uh, great news for, uh, for us. And I, I don't think, frankly, there could be, it took many, many years to negotiate this. I frankly think <clears throat> if Canada and the United Kingdom couldn't come to the table with a spirit of goodwill 
uh, and couldn't expeditiously negotiate a comprehensive, forward-leaning free trade agreement. I don't think, I don't know who, uh, who, uh, what other two countries in the world could do it. And I do hope that those uh, discussions are going well. And frankly, could they could be a model uh, for uh, the uh, attempted uh, free trade negotiations with uh, with the United States? There's huge amount of goodwill in the, both Canada and the United States uh, for the United Kingdom. I think we all want to see, regardless of what we thought about uh, the European Union, we obviously want to see the United Kingdom flourish uh, and thrive outside of it uh, economically. Uh, and uh, I think uh, you find a lot of support for a free trade uh, deal with uh, with Canada. Frankly, even the whole idea of bringing the United Kingdom into NAFTA, uh, we would be uh, we would be uh, very open uh, very open to that among uh, this among conservative thinkers. We have a leadership campaign going on, and I'll I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over. That was uh, John R. Bird, um, as many of you know, a significantly important figure in the uh, Canadian government. Uh, just highlighting the, you know, the, the potential that the, the Commonwealth has, um, which was fantastic to see. And it was um, a real honor to have uh, that profile of person um, attending our event. Um, moving on, we, we swiftly after the John Baird event, we were very fortunate enough uh, to be able to get the previous Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Um, he had a long established career in Australian politics. Uh, right from grassroots level and uh, right way to the top in um, becoming the leader of Australia. Um, he highlighted a few things that were very important to him. He, had, he recently had um, released a book called A Bigger Picture, which I do recommend um, in reading. And it was one that in terms of for the Commonwealth and for our organization, it really did push um, us further out there. And I think it made a, a significant difference. Um, it's added a new Australian element. I'm sure there's a number of viewers in Australia um, tuning in in the early hours uh, of the morning, but um, it was a significant um, political figure that we had. So I'll, I'll share some of his uh, thoughts and uh, some of his comments that he had um, during uh, our, our short chat. It's something again, you know, you've said in your past and um, in your book, um, regarding the changes to the media, which we can you know, attribute a lot to the, the rise in the right wing. In one of your addresses, you said how we're now in a world where the mainstream media is less influential than ever before. People can essentially select their own news, no creation, no filter on both the publishing consumer side. I, I want to ask you, what does that, what do you think that means for the future of politics? Well, it presents a very big challenge, Sunil. Um, I mean, just if you, if you just go back in a relatively short time, certainly in less than 20 years, we've gone from a world in which most media was curated, almost all media was curated. Uh, and in the sense that you needed to get an editor or a producer or a director to, you know, agree to let you, you know, put your stuff out there for the public to read or view. Uh, we also, the media, the, ma the mass media aimed also to get a broad audience. So, and you know, and that was to maximize the eyeballs they had for their advertising revenues. Um, now with a combination of changes to technology to make the production and distribution of news much cheaper, um, you've now got uh, and, and with social media, of course, so much user-generated content, 
you're now in a position where people can be in a self-selected information bubble, not just an opinion bubble. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, choose to read a newspaper whose editorial page broadly agrees with your, you know, political opinions. But we're now in a situation where essentially you can um, uh, choose your own facts, which of course we're all brought up to believe you, you couldn't. You could choose your own opinion, but you couldn't choose your own facts. And this makes it very, this makes, it puts great stress on a democracy because it means that, that all too often people are not uh, considering issues with the same uh, common framework of facts. You know, that's the, that, and that's, that, that, that is a, if you don't have shared facts or shared um, information, then people will be making, people literally be talking past each other. And increasingly, I think that is a, that is a big issue. So it's really, but, but, you know, of course you've got, um, you know, and you see this with Trump in particular. I mean, he has no, he has no concern about inaccuracy, misrepresentation at all. It is literally, it's all showbiz. And the, the problem is if that's successful, uh, other politicians will emulate it. There we had uh, Mr. Malcolm Turnbull, um, a huge political figure, and it, it was probably one of our uh, stronger virtual events. It caused a lot of traffic on social media, emails wise. I know Paul Arcia was bombarded with messages and as was a number of the team. Um, and it was you know, an absolute honor to have him on board. Um, I, I'm gonna throw it to the audience. I, I can see that we've already started getting a number of questions coming in um, through our emails and social media channels. Uh, I can see Jack Thornborough here um, and um, yeah, far away Jack. Hi, Snell. Um, it, it was a very good seminar, a uh, webinar rather. And I think that the caliber of people that you're having uh, on here is, is, is testament to um, the momentum that, that, that the CFOC is getting. Um, I mean, one of his comments, or what, what I found was that he felt that how polarized politics is becoming. And I just wanted to hear some of your thoughts or where anyone else is speaking here on that. Yeah, I mean, it's something that I definitely agree on. It's something that I think if you see a lot of us um, webinars that we've been doing, I, I think it's something that's pretty universally agreed at the moment. Uh, we are seeing huge polarizations on uh, throughout the UK, in America, uh, Australia has recently been affected by where, you know, it seems as if the far right and far left are, are rising. And um, I recently was, uh, you know, our, our previous Prime Minister, Theresa May, she made a, a fantastic point about compromise and how important uh, compromise is in terms of democracy. You know, without compromise, there isn't a democracy. And I think we're almost um, starting to forget that. Um, so it, it's something that I think Malcolm Turnbull used a unique take in terms of his attack on the media. Um, I think it's something that we in this country probably um, don't pay as much attention to. It's not something that we've heard a lot of. Um, but it was definitely an eye opener. I, I know we've heard some, you know, not a um, bit more anti BBC movement, um, but it, it seemed with, with Malcolm, his experience in Australia, um, he, he seems to want the media to be more held accountable. And you can argue 
um, especially you know a lot of the news we see now. I, I don't necessarily think there's a political bias with you know uh, organisations um, being more conservative or more Labour, but I definitely do think that there is a, a push for um, uh, the, the same type of thinking. I, I don't think being conservative or having conservative thoughts are necessarily um, as appropriate as they were maybe 10, 15 years ago. I, I do think it's we're almost forced to have the same similar social uh, views, which a lot of the time, 90% of the time are the same, but there are differences. And I don't think we should shy away from those differences. But I think um, a key thing is open dialogue. And what, one of the great things about these webinars is that you're able to have those open dialogues. You've got politicians who have, you know, who have to listen to both sides, who, who have to listen to uh, a lot of the time opposition parties and reach compromises, which is what the Commonwealth is about, which is what democracy is about. So I think um, that's really, really important. Um, and um, it, it's something that we here in this organization are, are all about, you know, we want to hear different opinions, we want to hear different thoughts and not be in a, uh, in, a in an echo chamber or in a, or in a social bubble. Um, but th thank you for that, Jack. And, you know, if, if more people have questions, feel free to email them in and um, uh, write to us and uh, whether you can do it by Zoom or Twitter, whichever handles, we'll try and answer as many as we can. Uh, me and Paul are always happy to answer questions, but thank you for tuning in to the uh, webinars, Jack. And with that, um, we will now move over to Dr. Luke Evans. Um, he, he produced a, a fantastic webinar um, and he actually revealed to us a, a bill for the first time in public um, that he was going to be discussing, which is on social media and body image. Uh, we were very fortunate. He, he had proposed a bill, I think, a few days before, um, hadn't spoken about it to any media outlets. And so we were very uh, grateful and humble to be able to have that conversation with him. Uh, it since has picked up a lot of legs. I'm sure some of you have read about it and seen it on various different social media platforms. Um, but I'll uh, hand over to the video. I think that will speak for itself. Um, and hopefully we can hear some comments from you guys. Social media, I mean, it, it's something that we've been discussing in quite a lot of detail. And um, it's interesting you're talking about answering questions on, on Twitter and um, uh, other social media platforms. And we're seeing a, you know, a rising in terms of people being stuck in their echo chambers and um, almost the, one of the biggest dangers to democracy we, you know, I've been reading is social media in the sense of having this open dialogue where you know, you, you're able to have that back and forth with, with somebody and um, you have full coverage of what they're trying to say and you have the opportunity to fully explain yourself. The question I would ask you is, you know, how would how do you envisage that happening? You know, we're seeing Twitter and Facebook having more and more power um, than ever before, and um, often in, we, we as conservatives tend to be critical of putting in um, extra laws, and it, you know, almost uh, big criticism is always stifling freedom of speech. So, how do you see that moving forward in, in terms of really tackling that so that there is more of an open dialogue between? us and big social media platforms? Well, I think it's the blurring of the lines because I think freedom of speech is really important as long as it's not hate incitement. You have the right uh, to be offended by what I say, I have the right to say it. But I, one of the biggest things that's lost is common decency. You know, yes, I have the right to offend you, but also I have the responsibility to, to choose when I do so. Um, and I think 
it's very easy. The anonymity that's provided online allows for these pile-ups, the council culture that goes in place, and the idea that it's there's only one way of talking about things. If you disagree with me, you are morally corrupt. Clearly cannot be a, a way forward, but I think it's, it's exposing that, and from people like myself uh, and, um, uh, and politicians, but even anyone else on, on social media, it's, it's, you do see it on, uh, on some of the, the, the platforms that people are able to engage and ask sensible questions and share information, but there seems to be this lack of um, just common respect and, and decency for, because people don't understand um, you wouldn't speak like uh, that to me if you met me in the street or if you were in the pub or in the office. Why is it acceptable to do so behind a keyboard? Um, I'm very keen on the, the people who troll me um, or send me uh, e you know, horrendous emails. I, I, the first thing I do is invite them in to come and speak to me about it or you know, let's have a conversation about it. And it's amazing how many people then don't take up that opportunity because it's much easier to be a keyboard warrior um, rather than uh, actually have a debate with someone. How you get around that, um, I don't know that. I guess, you know, having details about uh, the, the anonymity side does concern me. However, there is that, I'm always conflicted because as a conservative, the idea of a state or companies collecting more and more data on you to allow you to do something is really, really difficult. Um, I guess it's people like, uh, uh, you know, people in my role speaking up and being able to feel that they can express their opinion and weathering those storms, you know, the council culture storm saying, well, actually, does everyone really feel like this? Being a, a shy conservative has not been something that uh, is new. This has been ongoing for, for several years, but we shouldn't shy away from the debates to be shouted down because actually... There was an 80 seat majority that put us in. People want to have these debates, but they want to have it in a controlled manner, like you're doing in a dialogue here, that you can interrogate someone like myself and, and indeed have these interactions in the hope that you'll glean some knowledge and you go, no, I agree with him on this, or he's way off point on that, and the follow up. And, and I think that's really important. And so, Brexit has caused a lot of problems about it. A lot of people argue that democracy is broken. I would actually argue it's working very well. This is democracy. It's nitty gritty. People have opinion. They're all bought in. You do not speak to any single person who doesn't have an opinion on Brexit or what's going on, which means people are fantastically engaged, but it's how you get that voice heard in a sensible way that allows for a dialogue is the most important thing. There we had uh, Dr. Luke Evans. Um, if we get time later on, I will, I will share the bill that he did propose. Um, it's something that uh, I know a lot of people here would be interested in, so we, we will share those details uh, a bit later on. Um, finally, the, the last little snippet that we will show, I, I do want to highlight all, all these um, webinars and all, all these clips are available on our YouTube channel um, and they're available on our Twitter feeds and our Instagram feeds. So do feel free to watch them there. Um, I'm gonna go with uh, Robert Zulik's uh, interview with George Osborne. We were very fortunate, uh, me and Paul, in, in having this event, um, not just having one major political uh, influential uh, speaker, uh, but to have two was a, a great honor, um, especially the, the caliber of the two, the two people, uh, you know, Robert Zulik is somebody who has served six different presidents. He's worked on um, George Bush's uh, senior's uh, administration, then his son, Junior's administration, which in itself is an incredible achievement. Um, here we had George Osborne actually conducting a lot of the interview. As some of you may know, he's the uh, editor-in-chief for the Evening Standard. 
Um, they had a very good relationship between the two, um, US and UK when they were in power. Um, so it made sense for them to conduct a lot of the interview. Um, but I wanna share an interesting piece um, that Robert uh, wanted to highlight and uh, something that um, George uh, really wanted to push towards um, when we started. With your partners, and that's a question of, can you find common ground while keeping sensible deterrence? That's not the approach the Trump administration is taking. All right, so final question for me, and then, then, from, then I'll turn back to Sunil, who will uh, field some questions from the uh, audience. But, uh, so let's assume, of course, that Donald Trump and Joe Biden are busily reading your book, or if they've not already read it, <laughs> um, which at least is possible with one of them. And uh, let's also think um, uh, that the people who advise those people um, uh, will be reading your book, which I'm absolutely sure is true. Um, I, th I think we know that, I'm not going to ask you about Trump and you're a Republican, I think you've, you've made your views quite clear if you read the book. Give us some sense of uh, what a Biden foreign policy might be like. I'm not prejudging the outcome, who knows going to win, but uh, where does Biden sit in this tradition of American foreign policy? Uh, what might we expect? And then we'll, then we'll have a few minutes for questions from others. I think the honest answer is it's quite fluid. There's a lot of people around Biden who know what they don't like. They have a very long list of things that they would like to do. But I just wrote a piece this week in Foreign Affairs Online that offered my suggestion, uh, which is that, uh, and again, this is a nice fit because in your career, George, you sort of combined the domestic with the international. You have to start out realizing if Biden's elected, he's gonna face a huge domestic agenda. He's got a pandemic recovery and a freight healthcare system. He's got immigration issues. He's got uh, inclusive economic growth. He's got climate change uh, and energy and environmental topics. He's got racism, it's huge. And in our system, unlike the parliamentary system, um, you have to figure out what you're gonna get done with the Congress. Now, Biden has the possibility of bringing more legislative expertise than any president since LBJ, but that means he's gonna have to spend a lot of time on that agenda, and he's gonna have to set priorities. So if he wins, it'll be interesting to watch how he structures the White House. My former boss, James Baker, I quote in the book under Reagan, said to Reagan in 1981, you have three priorities, Mr. President, economic recovery, economic recovery, and economic recovery. So the question is, what will they be able to handle? Now, if I connect this internationally, my suggestion would be that the Biden administration, rather than chase after 100 different items, try to leverage its domestic agenda internationally. So if we come up with vaccines on the pandemic, we should not only rejoin the WHO, but we should come up with an initiative like Bush 43 did with HIV AIDS and malaria and tuberculosis in Africa. Um, if you uh, wanna act more on carbon, you not only rejoin the Paris Agreement, but you try to figure out how you build more support in developing countries, such as, for example, a soil carbon initiative in Sub-Saharan Africa, which could probably deal about 13 to 14% of the carbon needs that'd be very important for agriculture or avoided deforestation. If we do something on immigration with the Dreamers, combine it with my North America strategy with trying to support uh, improve relations with Mexico. Um, one that I come up with there, of course, is I think it'll be hard for Biden on trade, but uh, if, if he could do something, I would hope that the unions here wouldn't object too much to British work standards, um, but I would negotiate it with the three North American economies as opposed to just the United States. So my logic is, 
that not only creates an agenda that leverages off the domestic, but it's actually a pretty good way of probably rebuilding your alliance partnerships with Europe, Britain, and with the Asia Pacific. And based on that, just as in the Cold War, if you work from your alliance, you then face the two bigger questions, the future of free societies and how do we deal with China? So I try to synthesize, that's, that's the suggestion that I come up with. So you can monitor, see what happens. <laughs> that was uh, Robert Zulick uh, with George Osborne talking about the US election. I'm sure many of you would have seen the debate um, over the past week. Um, another fantastic honor to have a, you know, an established person like that to speak and to speak so freely and, and candidly was um, something that we were very fortunate to have. Um, I forgot we do actually have a, a, a final uh, webinar that we would like to share with you. Uh, this is one that I think if you're interested in politics or have followed politics the last few years or you know have campaigned or just have general interest in the Conservative Party, um, was a really huge figure in Sir Linton Crosby. He's, you know, he's, a, he's a political strategist who's um, been in charge of political winning campaigns across the globe. Um, he's highlighted as one of the most influential men in England and in Australia. He was part of the Howard administration, which is the second longest federal government in Australia. Um, and yeah, he's, he's got an incredible proven track record. Um, and here he discussed with us how he achieved those things, how he won the campaign with Cameron in 2015, the Boris Johnson mayor elections, um, and a number of different things. So we, we were fortunate to have him, especially as someone who rarely conducts uh, media uh, appearances. I think his last significant one was Patrick's foundation um, towards 2010. So he, he doesn't really have that much media presence. Um, so we were very fortunate that Paul was able to actually um, get Sir Linton on board. So um, I, I'm going to share uh, his video clip with you now. Um, and uh... It's interesting, uh, we're talking about leadership. Um, I actually wanted to take you back to the 2015 UK election. You know, we, we all know you were able to successfully uh, design a campaign that would mean uh, David Cameron and the Conservative Party would get an increase of 24 seats and win an outright majority. Um, when designing the campaign, what did you see as the most important areas that the party uh, and Cameron sort of needed to work on? Well, I think the first thing is, um, there are two ways to answer that. First is, you know, I thought that the Conservatives should have won an outright majority in 2010 um, and didn't. Um, and so I was always of the view that there was work that was unfinished that meant they could win the majority in 2015, although that wasn't a properly held view. But whenever you uh, prepare for an election, Indeed, any sort of campaign, it could be a consumer campaign, it could be a campaign uh, amongst shareholders, whatever it might be. Um, you simply, I always prepare by trying to answer um, several, what I call diagnostic questions. Um, seven questions generally that, that are the key. You know, what is the result you want? That's the first thing to understand. What is the result you want? And the result in the case of parliamentary elections in Westminster are a majority of seats. In the current presidential election contest, it's um, electoral college voters in the right place. Neither of those elections, as it happens, require you to get a majority of the vote. 
You just got to get the right votes in the right places. So what is the result you want? Who will decide that result? What matters to them? How do you reach them? What do you say to them? How do you engage with them? And then how effective are you in engaging with them? And that's really, you answer those seven questions, you aren't, you, you've just written a campaign plan and a strategy. And so if you go to uh, the 2015 election, well, we knew that there was less likely to be further gains, many further gains achievable in Labor seats. So we had to look at where else uh, you could make gains. And that's when we identified a whole swathe of what was then more than 50 Liberal Democrat seats, a significant portion of which we thought the Conservatives would win. And the reason we thought the Conservatives could win them was because the campaign was built on sensible research. And we knew in the Liberal Democrat, a lot of people in the UK colloquially describe what a Liberal Democrat um, looks like. Uh, but actually what they're describing often is not a Liberal Democrat voter, they're describing a Liberal Democrat party member or MP. What we knew from the research we did in 2015 was that a majority of people in the Liberal Democrat seats, in fact, more people in Liberal Democrat seats than in any other type of seat, wanted a Conservative majority government. More people in Liberal Democrat seats wanted a Conservative majority government than people in Conservative seats wanted. And more people in Liberal Democrat seats wanted David Cameron as Prime Minister. And more people in Liberal Democrat held seats wanted uh, David Cameron and George Osborne together to be in charge of the economy. But they didn't see the connection between those national ambitions, Conservative government, David Cameron, Prime Minister, George Osborne and David Cameron in charge of the economy and how they voted locally because they saw the contest locally as, oh, well, you know, Labor are not, it's either Labor or Conservative going to be in office, maybe in coalition. We don't want another coalition, they would say. Um, they couldn't see how their vote could deliver the outcome that they wanted. And we had to show them, therefore, that their vote, even though they're in a seat currently held by the Liberal Democrats, that their vote could deliver that national outcome they wanted. And we also had to show them that they could get a Liberal, uh, they could get a Conservative MP who would be every bit as good on the ground, because that was one of the sort of stories the Lib Dems used to tell about themselves, that is they're good local campaigners, they're good strong local advocates for the local community. So the campaign in 2015 was built around the sense that Conservative MPs could be effective local MPs, who had their own, had plans for their local community and understood those local communities. And then on top of that, show people how uh, they had the choice of David Cameron, Prime Minister and Conservative majority government, or an uncertain outcome with Ed Miliband as Prime Minister propped up by the Scottish Nationalists. And, and so it was built on answering seven that was with uh, Salinton Crosby. Um, like I said earlier, all these uh, webinars can be seen in full um, on our website, um, on our YouTube channel, and on um, on Twitter, Facebook. We, we, we've got a number of different projects involved in there, and you can also keep in touch with our future events coming up. Um, all these webinars uh, have been possible. Uh, a lot of 
hard work from Paul, myself, and a number of members of our team. Um, and, and the reason this year has been so successful um, is due to the committee team that we have involved. Um, one fine example is our new national policy director, Noah, um, who's been uh, an incredible, um, he's, he's done incredible work for, for our organization. He's really uh, taken things on board and pushed the organization forward. So uh, I'm delighted to have him with us today and um, I'm keen for him to share a few words. Thank you very much, Noel, and thank you everyone for coming. Um, I'd first like to say this is a rather odd way for me to attend my first party conference, but I'm delighted it's actually happening nevertheless. Um, I started with Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth just a couple of months ago, actually, initially coming on board to help with the social media side of things. I remember from the outside, the Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth looked like a really, really exciting project that was focused on making a real success of a post-Brexit Britain. And naturally, that was something that I really wanted to be involved in then. The Commonwealth is something that's really close to all of our hearts here. And it's so important that as we move beyond transition period and leaving the EU especially, that Britain has another avenue in which to stay an active, impactful member of the international community. And I know we all feel that the Commonwealth is the answer to that. I came on board to find a really driven, devoted and tight-knit team with Sonal, Paul and Sonia at the heart, who all had the same goals as I did. And we've all worked really, really hard over these past few months to put the Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth in a really, really strong position where we can look to expand our team, expand our reach, and expand our impact. In addition to that, there have been some fantastic events over the past few months as well, with I think that Malcolm Turnbull one being my personal fa favourite. Moving forward, we've got some really exciting things planned for the next year that I'm really keen to be involved in as policy director. By this time next year, we'll hopefully have a, a fully-fledged manifesto to show you, which will be an amalgamation of all of our policy proposals for a really global Britain. Um, and we'll hopefully have the blog properly up and running um, in partnership with The New Britain and so many more really exciting projects. But to that end, we've got to find new people to come, come on board and continue this journey with us and make those future projects a reality. And if you believe in a truly global Britain, especially post-Brexit, and want to be involved in any capacity, then please get in contact with Paul Sunil or I or on the or on the Conservative Friend of the Commonwealth Socials. Thank you all very much for coming, and I'm really keen for this next year to be really successful for the Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth. Thank you, Noah. Uh, I mean, Noah's been fantastic. He, he's come on board and he's taken um, this organization fully on. I think he wears the shirt all, all the time and um, if we had, you know, more members or more people like him, I, you know, it's scary to think the potential that we have. Um, and yeah, I just want to echo Noah's uh, um, words there. Uh, we have a number of new exciting things coming up and some of those things I'm going to share with you now. Um, as we know, this year has been uh, a bit more chaotic and we, we, we've had difficulties um, in terms of the COVID and in terms of virus and we've, we've adapted really well and we've had great staff like Noah to come in and, and help us. Um, but a big moment and a big thing for us coming towards the end of this year and something that we will follow through with in next year is our manifesto, um, which is an important part and it's a, a big reason for our, our existence. You know, we will be going to Parliament highlighting policies for the Commonwealth um, with our parliamentary chair, Helen Grant, who's so supportive of the Commonwealth and not just her, there's a number of other MPs that we're regularly in contact with and who believe in similar uh, principles that we do. 
Um, we're looking to open a new arm of policy writers, um, expand our team, um, having a new membership uh, plan, um, you know, continue the virtual webinars that we're doing. We, we, we're going to highlight a couple that we've got coming up towards the end of this year, but there will be, uh, it, it's something that me and Paul have clearly identified and it's something that clearly has worked. Um, and it's something that we will continue to do um, in the pre-COVID, post-COVID, whatever happens in the future. It's something that um, definitely has potential to continue. Um, and it, it's something that we will. And hopefully at some point we can return to physical events. You know, I, I know there's, uh, there's some people here who have been to um, the Commonwealth physical events. And I know there's some people that possibly haven't. Um, and they are in incredible events. They allow us to network. They allow us to bring different thoughts, bring different ideas forward. And it's an important part of our organization and something that we want to bring back, obviously, under the right conditions and the right circumstances. And when that opportunity arises, you know, we will be back um, hosting events in Parliament um, externally. And hopefully next year when we're doing this, this will be in person, um, which is ideally what we want to be doing. Um, Again, more collaborations. Noah's highlighted one, which I will go into more detail with uh, shortly. Uh, and we want to add more MPs and, and patrons to our board. We've had um, a number of requests and a number of people, and one I will go into further shortly of people who want to join our um, committee and join our uh, join our team. We've regularly in contact, like I've been saying, with a number of MPs. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's looking promising going forward for uh, the end of 2020 and and even more so for um 2021 um one of the the key areas that i, I do want to start to talk about is uh, new britain um it, it's a it's an organization that i actually ha have uh, done some work for it's an organization that noah has done a lot of work for and it's actually um one of the one of the ways i actually found out about noah um i didn't realize he had this other side and this other level of potential within him, but it was New Britain who really did highlight um, the, the, the potential that he had. And uh, I, I'm delighted to announce that we have a partnership agreement um, with them. Um, it, unfortunately, the, we, the editor isn't able to speak today, but he sent through um, a, a huge message and I'll, I'll read that out for you now. Um, so from Imran, we're really pleased to announce the brand new partnership between Conserved Friends of the Commonwealth and the New Britain. The New Britain is an online magazine established in 2018, dedicated towards giving a voice to centre-right and young people who often find that their opinions may be in the minority amongst their peers. The New Britain is home to articles written by individuals from many different backgrounds across the globe, and our global outlook is something that we really try and get across to our readers. Brexit presents us with a massive opportunity to expand our horizons with new partnerships with countries across the globe and in turn presents a huge opportunity for our Commonwealth friends to play a bigger role in our collective goals. This partnership with Conservative Friends of Commonwealth allows us to really utilize our combined strengths and gives Conservative uh, Friends of the Commonwealth members the opportunity to express their views on our platform with the hope that parliamentarians closely consider the huge benefits that closer Commonwealth can bring to the UK and the wider world. From trade and national security, stronger alliances with our Commonwealth friends that we share a rich history with, and hopefully will give the UK a strong start to life outside the EU. Um, like, like, I, like I've said, I want to reiterate, it's, you know, it's a growing um, thing that we're doing here where we want to start to you know, bring forward different collaborations, not necessarily 
restricted to uh, conservative MPs or politicians, organisations like the New Britain offer us uh, fantastic hope and fantastic opportunities. So um, it, it's an honour to be involved with them. And uh, thank you, Imran, for the brief that you have sent across. Um, our next webinar, um, I, I know that's uh, where we've received probably some of our biggest tractions um, over the last year or so, and it, it's been a, a massive part of us, and it will continue to be a massive part of us, is with Andy uh, Piley. You know, he's, he's an English businessman. He owns Fleetwood Town. He recently came out as a conservative. He, he's been conservative his whole life, but he's now decided to make the public knowledge, and um, he's keen to be uh, more involved with the Conservative Party, not just the party, but in particular with ourselves. Um, and um, it, it's something that we're delighted to announce that he is an advisor to our organization. And it's an absolute honor to have someone of that profile uh, being involved in the party. And it just shows the reach that you know, we have and as people we generally have um, to have someone like that involved, um, not necessarily with a political background or a political belief, um, as to say. Um, but just to have that um, profile of person who's very keen to be involved. Um, that webinar will be discussing a range of different things, his political beliefs, his political opinions, how he uh, came about the decision to be pro-conservative uh, and start to voice that, and also the impacts of COVID and football. Um, and COVID in general sport, I think it's obviously had a huge impact and it's something that he really wants to highlight. Um, and we're really excited to hear from him. Um, I want to start now to close with q and I understand we've had a few questions coming. I know we are running out of time a bit. Um, I know, you know, if there are people who have questions via Zoom, feel free to shoot them across now. I, I believe we have one from Facebook, Noah. Yeah, we've got one from Harry Maidenhead on Facebook. Um, he says, I'm really enjoying the debate as I believe politics is the lever of economic transformation in society. Politicians can play a pivotal role to address the new challenges caused by, by the unprecedented pandemic to life and the health of nations. Since the Commonwealth came into existence, it's been promoting the rule of law and democracy all over the world. I think conservative friends of the Commonwealth should engage with all five regions, Africa, Asia, Caribbean, and America, to promote core values of the Commonwealth and encourage the smallest nations, countries, and of state to have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great comment. It's something that me and Paul have been, um, we are working towards. We, 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 you know, we're conscious of uh, not just approaching the larger countries in terms of Australia and Canada. And we, we know that the, the, the smaller nations in terms of size and, and geography, the, the part that they can play. Um, it, like I said, it's something that me and Paul are working on. It's um, something that we've touched base on with a, a number of states already. And it's something that we will continue to push forward. You know, we're not... Uh, the whole fantastic thing about the Commonwealth is an inclusive group um, and it, it doesn't really matter what region uh, we, we share the same democratic values and traditions which make it a lot easier to have open dialogue um, and we, we share the same you know the, the, the same belief in democracy and, and standard values which is very key when um, having uh, building relationships um, pause anything sort of wanted to add or I just wanted to say once again, big, big thank you to everyone for joining this evening. Um, as Sunil said, we've got some really exciting year ahead between now and the next um, party conference where we obviously hope to 
meet you all in in person. Um, keep an eye out for the um, Andy uh, Piddy webinar, which um, we'll be announcing officially um, on our platforms tomorrow with a with a sign up link. Um, that should be really really interesting. Completely different take on things from someone who's not a traditional politician. But I just want to say bigly thank you again to everyone. I've messaged in the chat how to get involved, so feel free to drop us a DM on Twitter, Facebook, or email us. Um, but I'm sure we'll see you all again, and just big, big thank you, everyone. Yeah, I, I want to echo uh, Paul's comments. I mean, it, it's been great speaking to everyone here, and um, anyone that does have an interest and, you know, who is, you know, it, it's very easy to right now to... When you go on the media, we, we seem to have a you know very you know, doom and gloom society, and you know there are full of people who don't necessarily prescribe to that idea and who believe that you know that, that there is opportunity there. Um, and then feel free to reach out to us. You know we, we're facing a number of issues globally, whether it's human rights, the battle for democracy, climate change, security, terrorism, and you know when there are the, these issues, there's always more hope for collaboration. Um, you know we, we've spoken and written a, a lot about this. Um, and we, we've seen a lot of these videos talking about polarization and we believe that the Commonwealth has the capacity to bring governments together, uh, but at the same time ensure countries are able to still keep their individuality and sovereignty. Um, so yeah, like, you know, I urge people here today to join these virtual events and, and if you do share a passion for the Commonwealth or the values we offer them, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and yeah, we, we, we're excited to see you guys again. and. Yeah, finally, I just want to add, uh, thank you for everyone for tuning in and uh, hopefully we'll see you soon again.